May 8, 2011. I'm having trouble getting used to 2011. It seems like just the other day we had Y2K, you know. <laughs> now they're, they're, they're worried about the Mayan calendar. Friends, you need to keep your eye on the Hebrew calendar. But aside from that, it is Mother's Day. I love Mother's Day because it makes me think about some things that I might not normally uh, study, might not normally dig into. And this morning, our title is called Resh Heth Mem. Now, I know that may sound very strange to you. Somebody says, oh, that's all Greek to me. No, this is actually Hebrew to me. <laughs> Resh Heth Mem. These, uh, if you pick up your bulletin, I've written about briefly in the bulletin. I won't read that to you, but I, I do want you to understand that these letters in the Hebrew alphabet, Resh Heth and Mem, loosely can be uh, correlated to an R, uh, an H, and an M in English. So from here on out, we will probably talk about it as R, H, M. But in Hebrew, we write, or the Hebrews write, exactly the opposite from the way that we do. You open a book and you start on the left-hand side of the page and you read in the direction of the right-hand side of the page. The Hebrew does exactly the opposite. They start on the right-hand side of the page and move to the left. God made these people peculiar. He made them to stand out wherever they go in the world for a reason. They were to be an example to all mankind, a nation of priests, a holy and royal nation. You have been grafted into that destiny. You do not have the same cultural identity, but you do have the same destiny. You've been grafted into that plan of salvation. We are of the faith of Abraham. So I find it incredibly useful to see how the Hebrews did do things, how the Hebrews studied things, how they learned things. When Jesus said mama, what did it mean to him? When he called his mother by name, did he say Mary or did he say Miriam? You know, I find it interesting to learn the culture of the Bible. And I hope you do, because if you don't, you're going to be bored this morning. Do you want to learn more about the world Jesus lived in? Amen. Can we all acknowledge that when you're reading certain things in English, like, dude, I like B-A-S-S. -S. Are we talking about fish? Or are we talking about a certain thump in your radio? Right? Context has to give you this. We pronounce them slightly differently, but the letters are exactly the same. No difference between the word bass and the word bass, except we pronounce it slightly differently based on the context. How about I read or I read? Two dramatically different meanings. One happened in the past and is done. One is ongoing and happening now. Same exact letters, but a slightly different pronunciation and two entirely different meanings, and yet it's all based on the same word. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Yes. Now, if you're having flashbacks to seventh grade English and things like homonyms and homophones, I'm sorry, we're not going to talk anymore about homonyms anything. But when we... Acknowledge that all languages have these. It's important to look at one in the Hebrew language. The word Raham in Hebrew has a very special meaning. I wrote about it in your bulletin, but you need to know that when the ancients wrote the word as inspired by God, there were no vowels in it. So if you're going to write the word Eric, it would be R-C. <laughs> and you'd have to fill in the rest, right? Might be talking about Cola, or we might be talking about your pastor. Who knows? R-C. Or Ara C, if you prefer. Right? Ara C. Uh, and some orange drink. Um, 
In Hebrew, this word would simply appear as the equivalent of R-H-M. Now, when you saw R-H-M, you would have to look at the context around it to know how to pronounce it, whether it be Rahem or Rahem. You would have to look at what the intent of the author was to know what to say. Just like when you get to a sentence and you see the word read or base or lie, the way that you pronounce it, the way that you interpret it, all is based on a larger picture. Well, the same happens in the Bible with RHM. Turn with me to Genesis 1, and we're going to start in, I don't know, in Genesis 1. <laughs> Tell me when you're there. Come on, you got past the table of contents and your preface. Is it preface or preface? How do you know that? I thought preface was before she put on makeup, right? I'm already in trouble? I am already in trouble? Hey, when I said she, what did you think of? It's Mother's Day. You thought of a female immediately. Uh, in the Bible, there are, are certain genders associated with words. The same way that there are in Spanish. Some words are masculine. Some words are feminine. And much can be made out of that. You know, but really, how masculine or feminine is a rock? I mean, so on some level, things just had to be assigned something. But there is absolutely no ambiguity in Hebrew when regarding pronouns. In 17 times, in the first two chapters of Genesis, God is referred to not as she, but as he. This masculine pronoun is always assigned to God because God is always viewed in the masculine sense because... It designates authority, and God intended for authority to flow through males. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. It's the, it's the culture of the Bible. It's the way Jesus would have understood it, and therefore it's the way that I understand it. Now, having said that, when we say something is masculine or something is feminine, we start with very medical-like definitions, right? It depends on where chromosomes fall. It depends on uh, what certain attributes of your body look like. How is something masculine or feminine when it is spirit? What makes masculine or feminine when something is spirit? This is going to be one of those messages, especially my close friends. You'll have to listen to me closely. If you go out and misquote me, then we will confirm that suspicion that we're a cult. You know? Uh, I, I learned a long time ago to define the word cult is the church down the road from you. <laughs> right. And fanatic is, is to me, if you look at me and call me a fanatic, all I'm hearing in my mind, the interpretation that's going on is, I love Jesus more than you. So those words don't even hurt my feelings anymore. And the very first time I preached in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I got those very words thrown at me, and it, it, 18 years later is, is still happening. And I come from a long line of uh, crazy, radical preachers that uh, those same words have been applied to. Having said that, what we do want to be is consistent with the Scripture. So 17 times in the first two chapters of Genesis, God is He, never she. This is because when envisioning God, He is authoritative, authority flows from the male, although we're not looking for chromosomes, He doesn't have them. Uh, we're not looking for certain uh, appendages, He does not have those. God is spirit. The Hebrews speak of Him as a He. When we say this, though, we have very limited definitions. Have you ever been told, Cody, has anybody ever told you you need to embrace your, your feminine side? I'm worried about Cody if he has a feminine side. Right? God made us male. 
and female. There's no such thing as a male with a feminine side. There might be a man that acts in a feminine manner, right? Uh, my son tells me those, those boys are called emus. I'm kidding, emos, right? Emotional males. Uh, I'm sorry that that's the case, but God made us two halves. He made us separate entities. A male, yeah, emus are what's on the farm, right? They've got long legs, they look like ostriches. We ought to see some of the pants these boys wear. I mean, think about this. God made them male and female. Listen to how the scripture actually says this, though. Now, let's start in the 27th chapter. I told you, Charlie, I was going to need your help today. I appreciate that. Move on. That was good. 27, uh, first chapter, 27th verse. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This is an interesting thing. God created all mankind. We understand that. But in the beginning, He had purposed that there would be male and female. And He created them in His image. Now, that, that, uh, that kind of rattles the understanding a little bit. God is always referred to as He. We call Him uh, things like Father. When He incarnated, He incarnated physically in a male. There is no question about those things. But things that we genuinely associate with female and male might not apply to a God who is spirit. Or rather, maybe it's possible for things that you are limited to, Him not to be limited to. I'll show you what I mean as we go forward. So, in the image of God, He created them, male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. I want you to skip over to the second chapter and 18th verse. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, an easer in Hebrew, uh, suitable for him. For every man that God invested authority, there also needed to be a suitable helper. The word ezer in Hebrew normally applies to God, not a woman. How strange is that? Psalm 121, I will look unto the mountains from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Help there every time is the word ezer. It's the same word translated helpmate. But it applies to God. And ezer in Hebrew is that thing which completes you and makes you able to do what God called you to do. So in every man's life that was invested authority, there was designated an easer, someone to help him. But only one? Well, only one that would be female. But God is an easer to us all. Does that make Him feminine? Not at all. Is that demeaning in any way? Is that telling God to get barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen? Not in any way. It means that He completes something about you that would be inadequate without Him. It is not good that a man would be alone. Or if you have a mother, there had to be a father somewhere. Neither one of them were meant to function independently. I'm so sorry, single mamas, for the difficult plight that you have. It is a hard thing. The good news is God is an easer. He will complete you. He will help you. He'll be a father to the fatherless. A uh, husband 
to a widow. Psalm 66 teaches it, but all of the Bible and the Hebrew culture... See, he is not confined to simply playing one role or another role. He is complete all by himself. Now, if you have 20 rabbis in a room and uh, you ask them what the word Yahweh means, right? Uh, 20 rabbis are going to produce no less than 777 opinions on the subject of what Yahweh means. Some would say it means I have always existed and I will always exist. Some would simply translate it like the NIV does. I am that I am. Others would say it means more of a raw existence. Some might say I am fully complete needing nothing all by myself. I am the perfect original source, if you will. This is a more holistic view of our deity of Yahweh. And listen how the Hebrews begin to describe him. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 1. We're going to be in the 31st verse on this Mother's Day. With mamas, you are our topic as we move. In Hebrew and Deuteronomy, the first chapter. Hey, by the way, when you were little, some of you still are little, right? Now we sent all the little ones out. We only got full grown human beings in here. Sorry, Larissa. And, uh, so, Judah, when when you were when you were a much younger boy, and you got hurt, who would you rather be there, your mother or your father? Neither, my grandmother. <laughs> oh, I should know better, Addison. When you were a little boy, and you skint your knee. And you wanted somebody to give you sympathy. Was that mom or dad? His grandpa. Okay. Look, I'm working. I'm working. Charlie, when you were a little boy and you skinned your knee, if you only had two choices, if there were only two people available and one was mom and one was dad and you were five years old, who do you cry for? Mom. We got one normal human being. Now, Judah, when you're on an operating table and you're coming out from under anesthesia and you felt as if your life was being threatened because you were not quite in your right mind and you were flailing like a cat and there were doctors and nurses attached to your arms and they were being bounced around the little room that you were in, whose name were you screaming? I've been told it was yours. Dad. He actually told them, my father is coming for you. <laughs> this is because innately we assign certain qualities to male and female it has little to do with gender it has everything to do with our association when we think of females we genuinely think of something more compassionate we think of someone more emotionally complex it's like God created and created and created and then said you know I can do better and did one more <laughs> Was there no girl power in here today? <laughs> Y'all are killing me. That's the only bomb I'm going to throw you today. <laughs> but when you think of uh, physical protection, uh, harboring from danger, very often your mind would drift towards a male figure in your life. The Hebrew Scriptures present these things in the same way. So when being delivered from Egypt... Listen to how they said this. It's uh, Deuteronomy 1. We'll start in the 30, 29th verse. 
Then I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you. Come on now. Judy, you could certainly help me with this one. If you don't, I'm going to deal with you later. <laughs> if you're being attacked by five men, are you going to call for mom or dad? I'm going to call for you. Yeah. <laughs> now, I tell you, growing up, for me, that would have been a close choice. You saw the video of my mama. She could she could let some people. My sister, too, by the way. One time she beat up five boys at the local swimming pool for me. Five. They were dunking me and holding me under. She hit one of them so hard his braces came through this part of his face. Yeah, those years of Taekwondo lessons, you know. I, I was usually the, the, uh, the recipient of, of those beatings. I was happy to see the fury unleash someone else. That was a proud moment. So I'm not suggesting that genders cannot cross these lines. I'm just suggesting that they're genuinely associated or generally associated with certain things. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and the desert. There you saw how the Lord your God carry you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. When my kids were alone and they were scared as children, like from the dark or something, they usually cried, Daddy. Especially if they thought something was there. When the Hebrews thought about their God, they thought about Him like a father carrying them when danger was near. But this is not the only way that they thought about Him. Mothers, if you have ever been made to feel like you lost your existence in another human being, like I took His name, I've borne his children, I've cleaned this house, I've laid aside my dreams, all of those things. You need to know something. This is inherently a godly characteristic. We're called to lose our name in Jesus and take his name. We're called to take his vision upon us and bear his fruit. This is a godly thing. This is how God designed us. And he himself has some of these attributes. Watch this. Here he's called a father. Turn with me to Genesis 43. Tell me when you're there. Now if y'all talk to me and this goes well this morning, this will not be an incredibly long message. But if we have to ask every question four times and wait for a response, it'd be a long message. You'd be the last one in the line at Luby's. The Baptist will beat you there. The Methodist will beat you there. Even some of the Holiness Pentecostals will turn and mock you for being so late. <laughs> Are you all in Genesis 43? Yeah. Look at... Uh, come on, I have one admirer out there. Verse 11. Then their, father, then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, a little honey, a little spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. That's making me hungry. Take double the amount of the silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back in uh, into the mouths of your sack. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to this man at once. What is the situation here? We have, we have some brothers who have sold out Joseph now there's uh, only 11 of them. They've got their little brother, Benjamin. And they're, they're going to have to risk Benjamin's life. So father is really upset. 
They're going to have to go back to Egypt not knowing what's going to happen to Benjamin in Egypt. Father is really, really concerned. And listen to his prayer in verse 14. And may God Almighty, that's an interesting word that I don't have time to teach today, it's El Shaddai. El Shaddai means the God of provision and or God Almighty. Shaddai is uh, uh, mighty sufficiency. El is God's name. This has been pictured in various ways. You know, what you need in provision is different at different times in life. I'll leave that one there. You ought to look that up sometime. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now, in your English Bibles, this is one of those things where we say, may God grant you mercy. And to us, mercy is like, you deserve punishment, but maybe you don't get it, right? Would you all agree? To us, mercy is one of those kind of words. It's like, maybe you you should have got slapped, but you you didn't. Uh, That was mercy. You should have got punished. You didn't. That was mercy. This Hebrew word is R-H-M, and it does not mean that you deserved something and didn't get it. In fact, R-H-M used in a singular sense would not apply here at all. R-H-M is the place where babies are born when used as a singular sense. It's actually a part of anatomy that the Hebrews would call a womb. What on earth could God be talking about? Now, it's not singular here. It's plural. The word mercy here is plural. It's R-H-M in a plural sense. Rahamim is what it is. And literally in Hebrew, what this says is may God be wombly or womb-like or wombs to you. Doesn't that seem strange? You know, but Hebrew is a vivid language. It is an amazing, powerful language in this sense. God is not just angry. When we say angry, that's an emotion. When the, when the Hebrews say angry, they very often say, He has flared nostrils. It's a picture that conveys the emotion. It's a more holistic view of it. It's not something inward that is just felt. It is even coming out of Him. This is why 2 Samuel 22 says, smoke rose from his nostrils. He was angry. The Hebrew doesn't really say that. It says smoke rose from his nostrils. NIV put both there. Because they're trying to convey a concept that you might not understand. In Hebrew, if you say that Jacob was resolute, I'm pointing to a Jacob in our church, if he was resolute, the way that you would say it is his forehead has become like flint. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It it means that you set your face like stone. These are metaphors that that the Hebrew language is rich with. Well, what could he be saying when he says, I am so concerned for my baby boy. I pray that the Almighty God of provision would be womb-like to him. Has there ever been a more protected environment that God could have designed? That all of your nutrition would come to you. That your own ears would be so filled with your parents' heartbeat, your mama's heartbeat, that you heard almost nothing else. That it was almost as if you were floating. No labor involved at all. Surrounded by warmth, wrapped in protection. This is what they're saying. The prayer was that the God of all sufficiency would be in the situation as protecting as a mother's belly, if you like, becomes to a baby. Isn't that amazing? Now, Hebrews had no problem with this uh, idea that 
men are supposed to be a certain way and women are supposed to be a certain way. This is well before those arguments. They simply were men. And they were women. And they embraced all of that. Jesus had no problem crying or laughing or making a whip. He had no problem with any of those things. He was not concerned with what his gender role should be. He is the definition of what a man is. So God is not concerned when an attribute that some would say is feminine is applied to him. He is the ultimate, complete, original source. It's us who are incomplete. Now, you may think that you need to develop certain characteristics. Like I need to, somebody often tells me if I wear a pink shirt or something that I'm embracing my feminine side. I think it's ridiculous. The truth is my wife picked the shirt. You know what it means to embrace my feminine side? God made another half of me. And I'm complete when I stand in her with him as the threefold cord binding us together. It's not good that a man be alone. He won't know what to wear. <laughs> Come on now. But in Jesus, anything that you lack, anything that you lack, He becomes your easer, your helpmate. He is for you whatever you are insufficient in because He is El Shaddai. He is the all-sufficient one. And what they needed here was the most protected environment they could think of. You know that there are more than 10 essential hormones that a mama transmits to her baby while he's still in the womb. And that without those 10 hormones, you don't develop eyeballs. You don't develop lungs. You won't, you won't make a liver. If mama does not give you those things, even though you've got DNA, even though you've got everything else, they don't develop rightly. You know, when we think of warm, safe environments, Progesterone is released in a mother at conception. How about that? At conception. It actually raises the temperature in her body to better promote life. Yeah. Could God be Rahim? Womb life? Yeah. He will adjust the conditions in a way that will benefit you. He will feed you as if it were a mother feeding a baby. He will take care. One time he loved the Hebrew prophet so much that he flew his food in on ravens. That's a strange umbilical cord, but it worked. Didn't it? There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there, there's a hormone that is transmitted throughout a, a, a woman's body when she's pregnant. Now, I would have thought of a better name, a more technical name, but I'm, I swear I'm not making this up. Relaxone, right? It sounds like a, sounds like a headache uh, ointment, you know? Those annoying commercials. Relaxone. This allows a woman's ribcage to expand and grow with the baby. It allows her tendons to become more lax and, and to stretch out. It allows her body to change for the needs of the life that is growing inside of her. It's the ultimate in self-sacrificing. Right? Can our God be like that? Well, yes. He stretches, moves, reaches out, does anything that is necessary the Bible calls him the very author of life. He doesn't need these hormones to do it. He created hormones. He's spirit. He can't be contained in some small imagery of him. He's the ultimate. But when he wants to express himself as the perfect representation of God, he does it as a male for a reason. That part is beyond contestation. 
So remove from your mind that I'm saying God is gender neutral. That's not true. Uh, That's not a new translation. This is not a cultic teaching. This is an understanding of God that is a little bigger and maybe is unafraid to say the same reason that you love your mom, you might love him because he's done the very same things for you. Turn with me. Well, how about this one? Uh, Read the 14th verse. No, we read 14 verse 30 rather. Uh, I've got to find it still. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother Joseph. Uh, Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and went there. Does anybody in here have a King James Bible? Is anybody reading from a King James? Please read that. Read it loud so that people can hear it. The 30th verse of the King James Bible in that chapter. Genesis 43, verse 30. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and left there. Okay, you know that the King James Bible was first translated in 1611 and since it's been revised many, 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 many times. Depending on the copyright date of her King James Bible, here it says his heart yearned. King James Bible that was, say, from the 70s, says he was uh, deeply moved in his bowels. And you know why? Because they didn't know what to say since the word was not bowels. Are you tracking with me here? They assigned to him something that he does not possess because to a Hebrew that was the best way to describe the feeling. When they thought of compassion, when they thought of tender mercy, when they thought of the deepest emotion you could have of someone else's welfare, they assigned to it feminine characteristics, even if it was not a female. Are you following me here? By the way, this is not always positive. Has anybody in here heard of the word hysteria? Yeah, look at the etymology of that word sometimes. Hyster is the Greek way to say woman. Some cultures are not flattering of women. Some cultures are even demeaning of women. That might be a good example. What they're saying is when someone is crazy, they're womanlike. I don't agree with that. You need to know something. The Bible, although we have copies of it in Greek, was not produced by the Greek culture. It was produced by Hebrews who reverenced and honored the female role. When God chose to be born into the world, He chose to come through a woman. He chose that in the first century Hebrew culture for a reason. They had certain thoughts and associations with what it meant to be a woman and what it meant to be a man. Turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy 13. See if we can pick up the pace here. Do you know that there's something in people that crave... I mean, male and female that crave the kind of affirmation that mothers naturally give. Uh, my, my children used to ask Jennifer questions. Oh, and Mom, do you like my hair? Mom, do I have pretty eyes? Mom, Mom, Mom. They never asked me those things. Never. Uh, and I don't think it's just because they were scared. I don't think it's because I didn't have positive things to say. I think it's because God meant for them to crave that from their mothers. I think that there's something that you can only get from your father in the way of identity. I think that there's something you can only get from your mother in the way of affirmation and comfort. And God designed it 
that way. Well, the scripture is full of these things, and God represents both. Watch this. This is Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells the future by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if that sign or wonder which he has spoken takes place, are we clear? A prophet comes and says something, and what he says happens. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether or not you love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow, and Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. What does this tell you if Jesus showed up and what he wanted to do was abolish the law that God gave the Jewish people. What does Deuteronomy 13 tell them to do? Yeah. Even if he does miracle after miracle after miracle, they need to put him to death because that's what the Word says. This proves beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was not seeking to abolish, abrogate, set aside the law. If he were doing that, then the Word contradicts itself. Instead, he came to put it on better footing better understanding. He came to show you what it looks like as the living, breathing, moving, walking Torah, but this is still not our point today. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you love, or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your fathers have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to him, or listen to him. Show him no pity, do not spare him, or shield him. You must certainly put him to death, your hand must be the first and putting him to death, and then all the hands of the people. How serious was God about sin? It's pretty darn serious. Pretty serious about following a prescribed way and no other. And friends, the point of this was not to bind them in legalism. That was a result because of their sinful nature. The point of this was to show them the right way to live. And many people, when they think about the Older Testament, all they think about is, wow, there was these rules and regulations and God seemed to be smiting everybody. Right? Have you never heard that? Come on, you can nod with me. Have you heard yeah, that? Yeah. The Older Testament, God is angry. God is vengeful. It's very funny how people often view their daddies that way. They'll say, oh, my dad was never happy. He worked all of the time. When we were around him, he expected to be heard the first time. If he wasn't, there was with him. In fact, people like to tell stories about who got whipped the worst. Have you ever told one of those stories? <laughs> well, there's one time, and I mean the belt was bloody, and it never, you know, and they get exaggerated. Exact. Was that all there was of dad? No. No, that was one facet of dad. But people don't tend to sit around and tell stories of you don't understand how physically brutal my mom is. My mom whooped me up one side of the head with a shoe and down the other side with a purse, and then she got out. They don't do that. They tell stories about their mama that emphasize compassion. That emphasize when nobody else loved me, she did. 
those kind of stories, generally speaking. Sometimes we have an improper view of the Word because we're seeing only one facet of God's character and we're not considering the other. And when we do and divide it into two separate testaments, we say, in this testament, God is love. And in this one, He's wrath. This is ridiculous. There is but one God. In the same way that your father and mother were supposed to represent to you authority and discipline and love and compassion, our God does both. Because He's complete all by Himself. He doesn't need two hats. Listen to what He goes on to say. If you hear it said, verse 12, if you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that a wicked man has arisen among you and have led the people uh, of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, by the way, our legal system is based on that. Inquire, probe, investigate. This is where we get due process from. But, you know, we can just tear it off of our monuments. You will certainly put to sword all who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and livestock. Gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. rebuilt. Before we read these next verses, which we're trying to get to, that sounds so harsh. Wipe a whole town out because it's infested with sin? There are times it's necessary to go to war. Right? Would you agree in our nation's history, fighting against Hitler was a just cause? Amen. Who did you send to do that? Did, did dad stay home and you sent uh, mom? All the GIs were moms that went? I'm not suggesting women didn't assist in the war effort. Couldn't have done it without. But who did you send? Dad. Dad. Because the image is that the male would go forward and fight that battle, right? Right. But this is an incomplete image if this is the only way that you think of the Lord. Think about this. None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands so that the Lord will turn from His fierce anger he will show you mercy and have compassion on you and increase your numbers as He promised on oath to your forefathers. Mercy and compassion are both resh, heth, mem. These are, uh, in the original text, exactly the same word, R-H-M. But why do we say one is mercy and one's compassion? Well, it's context. It's context. That's the only way that you can do that because what it literally says is that the Lord, your God, is womb-like and will love you. So in the very same picture that the Hebrews have of God the Enforcer who says destroy this entire town because of sin, they also say, but if you do what He says, He will wrap you in such a protective bubble that all of your nutrition will come from Him. You'll hear His heartbeat. He will protect you as a part of His very own body. You'll be one with Him even as Jesus was one with Him. If you remain in Him and Him in you, are you beginning to get these pictures now? It was a more holistic existence that understood God in both compassion and also in fury. And He is absolutely both. To say God is love and not read all of the other verses is to misunderstand God's nature. When you want to think about Him, you need to think about a mother who does well and a father who does well. You need to consider both the sternness, as Paul said, 
and kindness of God is both. And on this Mother's Day, it might be better fitting to instead of saying, God acts like your mother, well, ladies, how else could we turn that around? Maybe Mama is acting like God. Isn't that a good thing? Boy, ladies, you know, sometimes really you don't get the merit that is due to you. But self-sacrificing, is that God-like? Of course it is. Nurturing, is that God-like? Well, according to this scripture, it is. Caring for someone, is that God-like? Yes. He is all of the above. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 24. Tell me when you're there. There. Raham tends to mean compassionate, tender, mercy. There are not enough English words to describe this. And so very often you'll see compassion and mercy in the same sentence when in actuality it just says Raham. And I'll be honest, there are a few translations that occasionally say things like yearns in his bowels, but nobody comes close to saying actually what a Hebrew is envisioning here. And I don't know why. Uh, Many times our translators are translating a thought, and that's awesome. I'm thankful for it. Sometimes I wish they would just translate the Word and leave the thought up to the Holy Spirit to show us. Let's be honest, if you were reading this and you read the word womb-like, would you have to stop and go, Lord, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Of course you would. Uh, if you saw the Lord's nostrils were flared and smoke came from them, you, you would think about that. So this is the great argument in Bible translation. I don't want to give you a week left lesson here, but do we translate the word literally? Dude, that's cool. Well, that becomes an ugly thing on a cow that lacks temperature. Or do we translate it not literally, but the thought? Dude, that's cool becomes, man, that is exciting. Right? These are two ways to translate something. One literally and one thought provoked. And both have their pluses and minuses. This is why I'd love to learn to read Hebrew and I'm struggling. I'm just not that smart. So are you all in 2 Samuel 24? Look at verse 14. This is David's answer uh, when he gets in trouble. 2 Samuel 24. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Guys, this would be so awkward for you to read. You almost, I, I almost can't say it. It says, do not let us fall into the hands of men. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. He's wombing. Is it wombing? <laughs> what are you going to say with this? But the thought that could be translated out of this is David is saying... Look, don't leave me in the hands of men. They're unpredictable. They're harsh. They're vengeful. But our God is as gentle as the environment that I was birthed out of in my mama's belly. Right? Isn't that a deeper, richer, more beautiful picture of what Jesus uh, brings us into when He brings us into the fullness of the Father and the abundant life? How about this? Turn with me to Psalm 40. We're going to wrap this up here in a second because I think you have the point. And most of all, I want you to spend some time with your moms. Psalm 40. Look with me in um, verse 8. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips as you know, O oh Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. 
Did you hear that? I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. Uh, pull that one out of your uh, scriptural kung fu repertoire. Next time somebody says, God knows my heart. <laughs> yeah. If he's the only one who knows it, you've got a real problem. Because the faithful never hid what he did for them in their heart. It showed up in their lives. Yeah. I do not hide your righteousness in your I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. Because I want to talk about how deep his troubles are. When he says, don't hide your mercy from me, he's literally saying, don't hide your woominess from me. I know that's not a word, but there is no word that describes this. Saying, Lord, I need to go back to being like a child. Just wrapped in your presence. Uh, what was the song we sang in worship? When I cannot feel, right? How's that go? When my wounds won't heal, what else? My humbly kneel, hidden in you. Could I just sit for a while? What are we really asking for? A Hebrew would not be scared to say, you know, you need to be born again. Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Hey man, I'm trying to talk to you about spiritual things and you're not getting them. A Hebrew would not shy away from such topics. Are you beginning to understand? You need a whole new birthing process, but this time you're going to come out of God. This time you're going to be the fruit that He wanted to bear. Come on, I know you didn't expect us to go there. Born again, but it is where the Scripture goes. Turn with me to Isaiah 66. I want to show you something. We're going to get out of our word study here. You know, saints, I don't know sometimes, maybe I just get impressed with things that you don't. But if you're able to accept this word, that's a good one. That's a good one. You'll see volumes of things that are written on John 3. You will never see this explained. And God put you in a little church with a humble, uneducated pastor that he's given things to. And that is a good one. The Hebrews would call that a pearl. And a rabbi would string one pearl with another so that you had a beautiful understanding of God's Word. And it was all interconnected for them. It was all interlaced. Are you on Isaiah 66? Amen. Look for me. Look with me at verse 12. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like the grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to His servants. Then he goes on to describe His fury. You know what the topic was before this? Birth. Isn't that an interesting thing? The Scripture in its context shows you how to interpret these words. But they looked forward to a day when they would not only see the fury of their father in disobedience, but they would see His gentle compassion as if He were their mother. Yeah, Don't go all uh, Roman on me. There is not a holy family in heaven. Mary is not deity. This is all borrowed from the Greeks. 
called syncretism. And I don't want to teach about that today. The truth is you don't need some kind of holy quartet up there because God is all sufficient all by Himself. Are you cracking with me this morning? He's all you need. If you need a husband, he'll be your easer. If you need a wife, he'll be your easer. If you are a child in need of a daddy, he is a good one. If you're a child in need of a mama, he plays that role too. But praise God, he works through the women that are in here and they're already playing that role. Turn with me to Matthew 23, and we are in our second to last scripture. This will be a familiar one, so we won't stay there long. There. This will be the only 45 minute message you get out of me till next Mother's Day. Enjoy it. In Matthew 23, uh, slide down to say verse 37. This is a famous scripture. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Boy, the imagery here is so rich, it's unbelievable. Because Jewish men wore prayer shawls that had zitzit on them, fringes, kanaf were the fringes, the corners were zitzit. And when they prayed, they stretched them out like this. Jewish children grew up thinking of God as having wings. They knew that He didn't have wings, but to them, Daddy looked like He had wings. This is why the sun rises with healing in its wings. It's why... Oh, Boaz covered Ruth with the corner of his garment. This was all an idea of coming under God's covering. But when Jesus said, How I've longed to gather you like this, he mentions wings. But whose wings are they? A mama bird. I long to take care of you just like a mama bird would take care of her chicks. Does this make Jesus feminine? And not by a long shot, it makes him complete, it makes him the ultimate. It makes him able to transcend everybody's barriers and say there is more. It's the kingdom of God. When you're filled with Him, you're filled with all ability. You can be everything that He's called you to be. This is not some weird New Age concept. This is what it means to be whole in Him. By the way, Darren, when we wear pink shirts, it shows we're secure and we're masculine. <laughs> Here comes our last scripture. I didn't want to teach another message all out of the Older Testament without showing you actually the physical tie-in. I tried to do that with John 3, but we didn't turn there. I was going to do that with Matthew 23, but I only read two verses. So we'll do it in Philippians 2, and I'll read some more of it. This is our last one, though, so be of good cheer. The end draweth nigh. So if the Hebrew words for compassion or mercy are RHM, if they are resh, heth, mem, and you have to fill in the vowels based on context, if when you're reading it, the context shows you how to read it, whether we're talking about an organ or we're talking about a metaphor that describes an emotion, then what would happen if you wrote down a Hebrew letter to, I don't know, the Philippian church, and the Hebrew letter would not be understood by them because this is a Greek city. And so the Hebrew that you wrote got copied into Greek for them 
what would happen. Or, another possibility. Maybe you don't write it in Hebrew because you know that they're Greek and you can, you can write Greek, you can do both, but when you think and pray and eat and have fun at mom's house, you do it in Hebrew. You might be able to write Greek, but you're going to write Greek like a Hebrew would write Greek. Are we tracking here? So when we get to Philippians then, an interesting thing happens. If you have any encouragement from being united, this is Philippians 2.1. Are you there? If we have any encouragement from being united with Christ, by the way, the word united in the Scripture, I didn't show you this in Deuteronomy. It was in Deuteronomy 13. He said, don't let your hand be... Um, don't let any of these unclean things be found in your hand, he said in Deuteronomy 13. That, that causes fury. The words found in your hand that NIV says are really debak. It's a Hebrew word that is used first in the Scripture of a husband leaving his father and mother and uniting with his wife. And when he unites with his wife, the Hebrews say that this is like a super glue bond. In fact, ancient Hebrew doesn't say super glue because they didn't have it, but super glue is an invention of the Hebrew people. I don't know if you knew that. And they needed a name for it. When we have a glue that is not just glue, it's, I mean, it's super glue, they named it Debak. How about that? Because to them, the kind of uniting that a husband and wife did was a permanent adherence. It was not temporary. And what he was saying in Deuteronomy 13 is if you unite with these things by having them in your hand, God will whip you. <laughs> if you let go of them, if you don't have a permanent adhesion to it, it could be like a mama to you. Right? So here, this word, if we, um, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if the man who is writing is Hebrew, he's thinking of Debak, no matter what Greek word he writes here or is translated for him. If we are united to Christ, superglued to Him, permanently adhered to Him, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, most of you are in the NIV in here. And I understand that. If you have a Bible that is a literal translation, like, say, the complete word study Bible, this would be every time there's an English word, every time... There's a Greek word under it. You're going to struggle with this because tenderness and compassion, the word tenderness in the NIV is not in the original text. You know what is there? Bowels. And it makes no sense. The Greek speaker would go, I'm sorry? The same way that the English speaker would. If we said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any bowels and compassion... We'd be like, come again? Bowls? What? Bowls? What? I'm sorry, what's in the road ahead? <laughs> you wouldn't understand what he was saying at all. And when you begin to study this Greek word, which is hard to say, it's splechon. <laughs> That's the best I can do with it. That is a southern Texas boy trying to speak Greek. Splechon. They say it only applies to the intestines of animals. However... If you translate that Greek word into Hebrew, it is R-H-M. It's womaniness, compassion, tenderness. Doesn't that make perfect sense? So whether this was written in Hebrew or not, I don't know. But I know that the man who wrote it thought like a Hebrew. Because when he wanted to say tender, compassion, he said vowel-like, womb-like, compassion. And they didn't know what to do with the translation, so they simply said tenderness. 
Are you tracking with me? Sometimes we lack the words to describe just how good God is. But when the Hebrews wanted to describe a certain attribute of God, ladies, they chose you to do it. Because a male and a female together bear God's image. Wow. This is not how that's usually said. What is usually said is that man was made in the image of God, but it is mankind, male and female, he made them. What I'm trying to say, ladies, is you're beautiful. I'm trying to say thank you, mamas. I'm trying to say thank you for teaching us something about God that does not come innately to us. I'm trying to say thank you for being a visual picture of something that most men have a real hard time grasping, which is tender compassionate, loving God. This is what Jesus came to do. Display the fullness of God. You and I are incomplete, but when we stand together, people can see it all. Amen? Amen. Stand up and we'll go celebrate with our moms. Okay, so it wasn't 45 minutes. It was... You know, 50 minutes. Maybe 55 minutes. But it's been a long time since you got out of here in under an hour of preaching. I thank you for no evidence. That was awesome. See, you're already becoming more of a hymn. Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you that you teach us your word. We thank you, Lord, that things that are hidden from the wise and the learned are revealed to the humble and the simple. We thank you, mighty God, that even in little storefront churches, your presence shows up. Did you Lord, we ask that you would guide her. Lord, that we would be fed of you, that we would be developed by you, that we would be protected by you. Lord, let all of our affirmation come from your affection. Lord, prepare us to face the world. We love you and we thank you. We call you our righteous Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.